I guess if I could sum all this up, I'd say I was severed from my ordinary understanding of myself and reality in such a fundamental way in these different experiences that I intuitively got that there must be something more to all of this than what I had initially been led to believe. And I wanted, therefore, the philosopher in me wanted to know whatever it is that there is more than this ordinary, limited perspective on who it is that I am and what this is all about. Welcome to the Music Mind Podcast. This is a space for conversations about consciousness and culture and how we might live in the 21st century. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Taggart. Andrew calls himself a practical philosopher, a Zen Buddhist, and an entrepreneur. He has a PhD in philosophy, after receiving which he dropped out of the academic life, picked up a meditation habit, and has since become something of a nomadic, meditating philosopher. But rather than growing isolated, he is diving directly into the spaces where life's most basic questions meet our particular cultural landscape. So in other words, he's speaking directly to our time rather than checking out. In service of that, he is writing a book about the idea of total work, a cultural spirit or geist, where work becomes the center of our lives. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, We start out talking about total work and capitalism and post-capitalism. And for the second half, we pivot more into meditation and contemplative practice and how these fit into a richer emergence of life and culture as we move through the 21st century. So with all of that said, please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Taggart. Hey, Andrew. Oh, hi, Oshan. All right. How's it going? <laughs> it's going all right. I, I thought an interesting place to start would be, I listened to uh, the talk you gave that you sent out. I believe it's IHMC. Oh. And you made a comment that I that it was really interesting, could be a nice jumping off point. You, mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, Melissa Meyer, who's a, I believe, a Yahoo executive CTO. And she had made a comment that she works 130 hour work weeks and had done so in, in a light that it was not, not bragging, but it is something that is seen as successful. People are are wondering how to emulate and looking at it in an interesting way. And you made a comment that the ancient Greeks uh, would have looked at this and thought she was living the life of a slave. Right. And so I thought, it would be cool if you would elaborate a little bit on the kind of different ways culturally that we're looking at success where, you know, from where we're standing now, the 130 hour work week is something of admiration, whereas the Greeks would have seen it uh, totally differently. It could be said that modern culture has reached a point at which the Protestant work ethic is now on speed. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) With the result that you can take a figure actually a a fellow Wisconsinite named Melissa Meyer and see her as the 
uh, apotheosis of what a human being should be today. I think I also joked in that talk that she would have to be very careful about when she used the bathroom, (laughs) when she ate, (laughs) how much she ate, (laughs) about how long she slept. So what's especially puzzling about this is that this, this seems to be the ultimate figure of success. Yet, the ancient Greeks, we might remind ourselves, were very concerned with the question of freedom. What did it really mean to be a free man, as they would say, or a free person, as we might say? Mm. Therefore, they actually devised a system, one that we ourselves would not endorse, which had as its intention that of ensuring that a class of people, aristocrats, were able to secure their own freedom. But this meant that they had a nice hierarchy of value, you might say, or an axiology, according to which the lowest rung on the ladder was someone who was involved most intimately with uh, questions of production and reproduction. That is, someone involved in manual labor. So uh, I didn't say in that talk that Melissa Meyer is a slave. I said she was living the life that is, quote, akin (laughs) to that of a chattel slave. Hmm. There's a resemblance, and the resemblance is uncanny. But they're not the same thing, let me remind listeners. Hmm. So what we find there is simply that the worst person, let's put it in the most interesting way, the person who was the worst off in ancient Greece seems to be, in salient respects, the one who is the best off in modern culture. <laughs> and that is what strikes me as completely bizarre. And you've done a lot of work to kind of look into the history of what contributed to that flip exactly of work becoming this this very central and laudable um, aspect of our lives. And I'd like to ask you a number of questions about, about that. You're writing a book about total work. And uh, I would like to point anybody who wants to hear the full history. Andrew gave a really great talk um, and I'll post it in the show notes and it's on Peter Lindbergh's podcast of really digging into the history of total work and how it came about. But I'd, I'd like to ask you to kind of set the groundwork as we move forward, just to go however deep or however shallow you think is necessary in what total work is, but just to kind of give a common frame to move forward and ask some questions about it. Sure. Let's begin with the the chief historical question. And the question is, how did work go from being one of the lowliest human concerns a few thousand years ago to being sacrosanct in the eyes of modern individuals? How did what is the worst thing end up being seemingly the best thing? That's a paradox. Uh, so let me first define what total work is, and then I'll, I'll go through a very brief history of mm. how that transformation could have occurred, knowing full well and leaving out a lot of details. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine, Paul Millard, nicely put what I was talking about when he said that what I seem to be up to is, is, is to suggest that everything is work. That's a little bit too quick, but it's a good starting point. So total work, I would define more broadly as the process by which human beings are transformed into capital W workers and nothing else. As more and more aspects of life get transformed into work or into being work-like, 
But mm-hmm. specifically, it just suggests that human beings actually come to take themselves as agents, expressing that agency chiefly in the mode of work, be that narrowly or broadly construed. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty remarkable. That's the pretty remarkable thought. It's a thought about who we take ourselves to be in modernity. Maybe I can say why that matters to me now, and then I'll go through the history. Yeah. The, the reason it matters to me is that there seem to be three important, um, three important developments, ones I'm not necessarily subscribing to. The, the first is that we lose right around the end of the medieval period and throughout the first part of the Protestant Reformation, a sense of the contemplative life, what used to be called the Vita Contemplativa. The, the contemplative life from Greek antiquity up through the end of the Middle Ages was the most important thing. It was how one oriented oneself toward the cosmos and toward God. One wanted to imitate or approximate the mind of God, as one writer nicely put it. So that's the first. We see the collapse of the contemplative life and and with it a number of important implications. The second thing we notice is that the sphere of agency begins to narrow down considerably to the point at which we come to think that the only power operating in, in human life is human agency. I call that humanism. Mm-hmm. The view according to which what matters is not only human agency, but the human dramas which we keep getting wrapped up in. Mm-hmm. To see this, you can just notice, as Charles Taylor, the wonderful Canadian philosopher, once said that we've lost spirits, we've, we've lost animation, we have lost uh, enchantment. And time was, and I'm not, I'm not defending this, I'm not defending the idea that there are spirits and devils and angels and such uh, really operating in the modern world. I'm not defending that at all. Well, I'm just saying that once you disenchant, as Max Weber puts it, the world, and thereby arrive at a mechanistic universe, you also uncannily lose any notion of animation or power that doesn't come from human beings. Mm-hmm. So I joke and call this a species-wide narcissism. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm concerned with as well. And the third thing, relatedly, is that we begin to lose the idea of a cosmos. Uh, I haven't as take it as axiomatic that any reasonable world picture would speak to the human being's relationship to the cosmos, to what is other than themselves, but that, but to that in which they find themselves. Many cultures have had some kind of microcosmic and macrocosmic understanding, but in modernity, that is completely wiped out. We are acosmic in a sense, with the consequence that we end up with something like fancy forms of existentialism, which holds that, well, we're more or less free to act as we see fit, but there is no relationship we have toward an indifferent universe. Mm. So that's the backdrop. I'm now happy to go through the history yeah. if you'd like me to. Yeah, let's, that'd be a, it would help, I think, grounding everything, the, the history of, of how Total Work came. And I've heard you describe it as something that is coming into being that is not quite yet settled in in a kind of totality, but that is almost there, that like we're on this precipice or this brink 
of total work really manifesting itself. It's, it, it comes out in the way that work becomes the central lens through which everything else filters. It becomes the kind of the decision mechanism. So all the big decisions in my life, for example, when I think about where am I going to move, you know, it's, it's filtered through the lens of work. And so, yeah, the, I'd love to hear a little bit of history of just kind of how that came to be. It, it seems to me that we tend to think of ourselves, as I said, as human agents, but we don't ask ourselves what is the spirit or force or fundamental influence on what it means to be a human agent today. Sometimes I like to, therefore, analogize and say that total work is a bit like a geist or a spirit mm. in the sense that it's a bit like a force. And, and that, in, in that sense, it's operating rather like evolution. I don't mean to say that they're the same thing by no means, but we tend to think of ourselves as being in the driver's seat as it were, right? I am an agent mm. manifesting my will in the world, but never do I think there could very well be something that is, as it were, operating in the background and that is suffusing my consciousness. So that's one way of thinking about, a, a, as it were, a dark force, <laughs> the dark force <laughs> of total work. That makes it sound a little bit too Gnostic. Yeah. It's not meant to be by any means, but it, it, has, it has a little bit of that. I want us to turn the picture around and say that something is, something is operating on us rather than we are necessarily the, the ones in the driver's seat. Yeah, that, that's very interesting because it, one way that I've been thinking about it has been in relation to uh, the old Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi's famous butterfly dream where this uh, over 2,000 years ago, Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi is sitting by a, a rushing stream and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, or he falls asleep and he dreams that he's a butterfly fluttering about. And when he wakes up, he finds that he can no longer be sure whether he's a man who had fallen asleep, dreamt himself a butterfly and woken up, or if he was in fact a butterfly now dreaming itself to be a man. And if you think about this in terms of total work, it's also a way that I've been thinking about capitalism or just kind of the socioeconomic structures that get really underneath our lives. I'm beginning to question, or I think you can begin to question what is the underlying kind of substrate from which our lives are beginning to emerge out of. It, it almost feels as if we are becoming subservient to something other than than ourselves. So in this case, if we use total work, I almost wonder if we're entering something else's dream, if we're entering total work's dream and are being dreamed by it as opposed to work and capitalism, these things being aspects or figments of our own dream where we are that kind of underlying substrate. So I really like that image of the confusion or the uncertainty of what has become the, the underlying thing from which our lives are emerging. That's beautifully put. I can put it no better. Uh, I can only add that I think that there are two elements there. The first is that it is indeed an underlying substrate, at least by my lights. And the second is that, and this is the uncanny part, we forget that it is a substrate. Mm. And we thereby also forget that there are any other possible substrates that hitherto existed and that could exist. 
And, and so I think the, the listeners have been held off stage wondering how this happened. <laughs> Let me therefore yeah. tell that brief story. Uh, let's just say, uh, once upon a time, <laughs> that, that work used to be one of the lowliest human concerns. And this surely was true in, the, uh, in Western civilization up until, for example, the end of the medieval period. So the first seminal moment, I think, occurs in the, in the, in the monasteries in Northern Europe. The, the thought is that they begin to come up with an instrumental view of work or labor. On this understanding, work becomes valuable insofar as it helps each monk to cultivate himself while also cultivating generosity, which he can then exercise on behalf of the community. It's not yet the case that work is an inherent good. It is only good for you. And my, my view is that this still holds today. There are a number of people who think that work is good in as much as it builds character. But the story begins to ratchet itself up as we enter the Protestant Reformation. I'm more or less just citing Max Weber, who wrote a wonderful, also controversial thesis called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. In any case, what I take from that treatise is a, a novel idea. And the idea is that work finally, somehow, can become inherently valuable. It can actually become an end in itself by means of what Weber calls the calling. Protestants take themselves to be called by God to work on the world in some fairly sophisticated ways. Not to justify their salvation, but as Weber would say, out of a certain kind of existential anxiety when it came to knowing whether or not they were chosen by God to be one of his elect. Hmm. I think what's interesting about secularism is it kind of blanches out <laughs> the, 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 all these interesting, hard arguments and orientations. Right. And it just takes the kernel, you might say. And the kernel is, oh, work is, work is the center of life. <laughs> <laughs> forget about God. Forget about all the difficult metaphysics, all the gymnastics, and just take work to be the central focus of life. The, the last intellectual bit of this history takes us into the 19th century where we find Thomas Carlyle espousing what has been called a, a, a gospel of work. I take Carlyle to be saying there against the teeth, by the way, of, of industrialism, which he loathes, that work itself is, a, is an act of worship. So I, I, I read him as saying that work becomes a supreme value. Mm. I think these three moments, I'm sure there are many others to be sure, are at least sufficient from an intellectual historical point of view to see how the logic of Geist, the logic of the spirit unfolds, moving from work being instrumentally valuable to being inherently valuable to being supremely valuable. Right. And I think something like that ratcheting up needs to occur in order for there to be the creation of figures such as Melissa Meyer. And as you probably have known, you've gotten, I'm, I'm interested in looking at people as ideal types, as Weber would put it, or as certain kind of symbols or as historical figures. I'm not interested in picking on Melissa Meyer. I'm interested in how it's possible that you go from, from the aristocrat in Greek antiquity through the medieval period, up through the Protestant Reformation, and dump yourself out, as it were, in industrialization, and ultimately, 
through a little more washing and rinsing, <laughs> get get a Melissa Meyer to think that the very first thing, the, the seemingly very worst thing in the world, ends up being the best thing in the world. That which is central to our lives, that which is governing it, governing it, directing it, controlling it, and the like. I wonder, kind of moving forward in that history, what I think about is the relationship between total work or work becoming that central kind of gravitational heart of all else we are doing and and all else that we are and postmodernism or you know the period in the mid 20th century where you have a lot of thinkers who essentially go on this kind of mass rampage and deconstruct everything right so taking the the trope that everything is relative to its extreme deconstructing all systems of belief of progress of optimism of god and leaving this kind of vacuous uh, void where you know, nihilism and existentialism and all of these things are kind of brewing. But when I think about that in terms of total work, it seems to make a lot of sense that if you deconstruct the heart of everything that had guided what we b- thought of as progress or, or even value, then just by our nature, right? We're, we're creatures that need stories. We, we contextualize our lives mythopoetically, whether or not we consciously acknowledge it. And if you deconstruct what was at the center, something's going to fill that space. I forget who said it, but nature abhors a vacuum, right? We can't live as centerless, as centerless beings. And so I wonder if that opened up a greater space for work to kind of sink in and fill in like a, like a, a balloon osmosing. Um, the environment, because around that time, going into the later 20th century, right, it was, it was the heart of this big industrial boom. Um, and a little bit later, you get into the rise of kind of the neoliberal ideas of the individual and the worker and all these things. I wonder if, if you saw any connection or if you feel that postmodernism might have been another kind of ratcheting up of work becoming that kind of central uh, context. That's not something I've yet considered, but I think it's a, a really worthwhile point here. I'm very much drawn to Nietzsche's um, death of God thesis. Mm-hmm. And already in the, so I'll bring it back to postmodernism and the deconstructionists you mentioned a moment. You can think of Arno, Matthew Arnold's wonderful poem, uh, Dover Beach, is a poem he writes in the 19th century. And in it, you have the poetic speaker who is looking out at the ocean and who's telling us that the sea of faith has waned. Arnold was a Christian. And at the end of the poem, we notice that he says, ah, love, let us be true to one another. He sees that the sea of faith has waned and he, he, he's wondering what kind of consolation could still be found. For him, it was the, it was the, the privatization of love, mm-hmm. it seems to me. And I think that's a mistake. But that's also carried through into late modernity, where we think that love, the the romantic confines of love, are one essential aspect of a good life today. But what he noticed that is a sea of faith waning is also in concert with or sets the stage for postmodernism. We both know that postmodernism was anti foundational, it suggests that any kind of foundation we try to put forward in life is subject to deconstruction. Mm -hmm. Even if we grant that that's a worthwhile moment in human history, I'm not entirely sure that it is. Nonetheless, you're right. It leaves people really not knowing what kind of ground they can stand on. Right. 
maybe initially it's it's freeing and liberating, and it's kind of a Dionysian energy. But after a while, it's just not entirely clear. But the trouble I'm trying to point out is that even if we don't think we have any ground to stand on, we're very much self-forgetful creatures. I don't know how else to put that. Mm-hmm. It's what I was having a conversation with the Buddhist scholar David Boy yesterday, and it's what we were calling double forgetting. Hmm. We forget something in particular, but we also forget that we forget. Mm, <laughs> and so yeah. we forgot. We forgot that there was God. <laughs> and we forgot that we forgot that there was God. And you know, we forgot that there was enlightenment progress, and, apart from Stephen Pinker and others. And we forgot that we forgot that there was progress. <laughs> <laughs> Some would say at this point that we devolve to consumer capitalism. Right. And that's probably true up to a point. But my, I think my interesting contribution is to say that actually human beings, a la Nietzsche, need something to strive for. Surprisingly, we don't take work to be a second best owing to the, the, the double forgetting. We actually think that it's the best thing in town. We've forgotten foundationalism. We've forgotten that we've forgotten foundationalism. Part of us doesn't think that a kind of hedonic pleasure associated with with consumerism is sufficient to slake our thirst. But we can only think of ourselves as being active, as being involved in striving in and through the work that we do. So the puzzling fact is that we have yet to find anything remotely resembling a robust metaphysic or even a robust cosmology in which we find ourselves. We've forgotten that we don't even realize that we have no way via total work to grapple with our fear of death. And yet here we are, right? It somehow provides itself as the degraded solution while rubbing off the marks of its degradation. (laughs) That's, and that's even what, uh, Joseph Pieper, who I know your book is, is doing a lot to kind of explicate. There's a, there's a passage in there where he talks about our busyness and the incessant working as almost sloth. And that what the busyness is, is a symptom of our kind of wanting to bury our heads in that because at some level, we know that if we pause for a moment and look up and look out of that kind of working context, that we will remember, uh, uh-oh, <laughs> there's, there's, this is not the ground. And right. I think that's a, that's a fascinating way to put it of how we're kind of burying ourselves in this context because at the bottom of it, maybe some part of us knows that if we do take that moment to stop and pause and really take stock of things, we will remember that there's a lot more work to be done to, to find a real ground worth standing on. And there are two replies, one one jokey and the other serious. So <laughs> let me tell you the, the, the jokey part first, and then I'll go into the serious bit. Cool. Roger Scruton, you might know, is the introducer of one of the volumes of Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture. At the end of his introduction, he writes, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> he takes that to be the basic moral and intellectual lesson from that book. That is, we need to learn to cease to knee-jerkedly act. And in turn, we might go back, back, back into the mode of contemplation. But the, the, the serious part comes very, very soon. And I think given that you and I both have um, religious or spiritual practices associated with learning what 
consciousness is at a deeper level, we know, therefore, that whenever someone stops what it is that he or she has been doing and has never really stopped before in any significant sense, that person is probably going to be experiencing the profound effects of what Buddhists would call dukkha. Mm. One is beginning to look at the unsatisfactory nature of life. One is going to feel a sense of horror or disorientation, ill-at-easedness, unsettledness. There was an article published in The Guardian uh, a few years back, uh, a fairly you know, modest article, and it just suggested that people who go to meditate at, say, corporations, and never meditated before, and they might discover that they're, it's actually quite horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a guardian, so it has a kind of the, the postmodern relativism you were speaking of before, right, with, a, with, a, right. with, a, with an air of kind of modest leftism. So it's obviously cautioning people against this, this uh, potentially very dangerous activity. But I'm actually, I'm actually more or less in agreement with him about this. Meditation is in its own way kind of dangerous. Right. Because it very much might wake you up from the sorts of things you've taken for granted at such a deep level. And who knows whether you'll be ready for that. Yeah. Someone, uh, someone I know recently had mentioned, I think I saw it on Twitter. He was asking from an outsider standpoint, he said, I've heard that meditation can sometimes lead to these existential crises. And so, mm. is is it worth trying to get into it? Like, you know, what's the deal with that? And my response was, that's exactly what you want. <laughs> that, right. that, that's right. almost the point that any meditation that does not precipitate that uh, is not being carried out to its full extent. My wife and I were uh, go, be going to a meditation retreat. I won't say who, I'll just say we were speaking with some people. And we were telling them we were going to a meditation retreat. Uh, and it's a week-long one in the Rinzai Zen tradition. Mm -hmm. Listeners might not know that Rinzai Zen is pretty hardcore still today. This is the stick-slapping Zen, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're among others. <laughs> you know, there's sleep deprivation. There are long days of meditating for 12, 14 hours. Uh, in some kind of cases, there's a certain food deprivation. These are forms of aesthetic practices. And there are reasons for doing so. But that's the context, right? That's a week of, of diligent, persistent practice but the person seemed to think oh a meditation retreat and and thought that it was a bit like a spa retreat and thought, well are you going to so the question was are you going to have, are you going to enjoy yourselves and the answer was absolutely not <laughs> and i think that's more or less the key to i mean i'm being a little bit facetious here there are obviously some uh, some wonderful times when one is contemplating or meditating most certainly but one is not doing it for the sake of egoic enjoyment by any means. Right. I wonder uh, mm -hmm. to lightly pivot a little bit back towards towards total work. I wonder mm -hmm. in your in your reading of it, to what degree does this get tangled up with capitalist critique or post capitalism? Does total work seem as a kind of natural outgrowth of capitalism, or are these two things going on as almost more or less separate phenomena? I would say that they're entangled. Let me speculate here. My speculation, though, is, is, is that total work comes first, and capitalism is the form or one form in which total work manifests itself. 
That's the speculative thesis. And I call it a speculative thesis because I don't have sufficient evidence to support it, <laughs> but I think it, it's onto something. Right. And I think it's onto something because I do think you can find versions of total work instantiated in other political economic systems, such as fascism or state socialism. You can find venerations of workers, both in the former USSR and in the former Weimar Republic. To me, that's obviously just kind of anecdotal evidence, but it suggests something. It implies that capitalism is one form in which a certain kind of investor, entrepreneur, becomes the fundamental figure. The Elon Musk becomes the venerated figure. That the, the, the capital becomes the center. But could it be that, so if you take that as a materialist force, capital as a center, can you take total work as, in this case, the spiritual, or let me not use that word here, the, <laughs> the, uh, the intellectual, uh, historical force? And can you see those two intermingling or even intermarrying? That's the speculation. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is that I think that there is a contingent relationship between the two, not a necessary one. That capitalism on this speculative understanding is more like the carrier and not the host. Right. So when you think about the kind of last leg of that conversation, which is, okay, if total work is a diagnosis, what is the prescription? Or what do we do if, if we have this awareness growing of, of our larger situation? And as I've been exploring that realm in relation to, I'm not going to say post-capitalism, but capitalist critique, because it's it's becoming you know very more and more uh, prominent nowadays to critique capitalism in in all kinds of ways and mediums. But what I found was that a lot of the time, what people are really advocating for once they've you know to use the language once they've deconstructed capitalism and pointed their fingers at it. They wind up advocating for just a different kind of capitalism, not necessarily an overthrowing of the the principal tenets of private property and the operation of the means of production for profit, but something more akin to the Scandinavian model of higher taxes to provide broader social programs. And so that led me to ask, well, what does post-capitalism really mean? What would it look like? And is that anything that's actually desirable? Is that something we're looking for? And in that, in that area where I've kind of come to so far that seems to be the most sane, coherent articulation I found is something through the work of a couple of people. Uh, Paul Mason does articulate this. Yeah. Eric Olin Wright also wrote a really nice essay in, in Jacobin magazine, which is essentially, you can describe it as the taming and eroding model. And I want to I wanna briefly describe it and ask you if it speaks to you as a way to address the total work situation to see if these kind of paths forward relate at all. So the, the taming and eroding model basically looks at capitalism and says, we're not going to have this wholesale revolution overnight where we abandon that ship and hop onto some kind of utopian post-capitalist future. Rather, there has to be this kind of feedback loop or relationship between taming capitalism, which means moderating its greatest excesses, right? So rampant inequality or things of this nature, um, which kind of is the the democratic socialist or the Scandinavian approach, right? Of, of kind of a centralized top-down helping 
of those who are most afflicted by by the excesses. Mm-hmm. And then what occurs is these cracks within the capitalist system, these small cracks, the cracks where people can uh, small craps that works too. where people can increase can shift their activity into these post-capital or non-capital modes of interacting with one another so for example with with networks becoming a much greater kind of part or amplified aspect of the fabric of society right push through the internet that we can increasingly engage with uh, with people in ways that are not capitalist and that as you, and that that will participate in the erosion from within of the capitalist structures. And the feedback loop is where as you do that little work of shifting your life towards those non-capitalist sectors, the taming of capitalism makes that easier. And as you continue eroding, it becomes easier to tame. And so these things keep feeding into one another until all of a sudden the the hegemony, the dominance of capitalism is no longer the unquestionable reality. And there actually appears all of these viable alternatives from within. So I wonder if, if that speaks to you at all in terms of how we might go about dealing with total work, if we are on board that this is something that we do not want to let continue proliferating in our lives, or if you, you have a different way of thinking about moving forward. I, I think... Uh, I'm I'm sympathetic to the cause. I'm also sympathetic to what these two gentlemen are speaking about. The the part that I'm a little bit concerned about is that what's being described there, quite elegantly so, is a formal process, a process by which the excesses are tamed and capitalism from the inside, so to speak, is eroded. Partly, of course, that's in concert with what Marx was talking about when he suggested that we can't really imagine utopia. Mm. We just need to see what's on the other side, organically so, once capitalism collapses. So partly it seems rather consistent with maybe the, their, their post-Marxian commitments, the commitments of these two thinkers. But I'm, and so I'm not unsympathetic to that development. But what concerns me is that it lacks what Michael Sandel would call a substantive conception of the good life. Mm. That is, or let's just put it more simplistically, a vision or visions of what life together would be like. Mm. That's the part that I find almost always missing. That is the substantive claim about what this could be like. So I'll just provide you with my own, and it very much could be compatible with the, the formal mechanism or process that they described. One of the ways of thinking about what I'm up to when I'm writing about total work is to say that I'm more or less trying to reinvigorate a, a, the counterculture in the, in, the, in the first and second decades of the 21st century, or countercultural understandings. So for me, the, the counterculture is going to put pressure on the dominant culture, and my in, in my utopia, in my imagination, I would suggest that it could do so at least in the following way. Or here, to put it better, as a sketch of a substantive vision. Suppose that we had enclaves or pockets, as those two people describe, in which there is a possibility of what I call infrastructure. And infrastructure here would refer to questions of how you sustain life, individual and collective human life as well as the life of other sentient beings. And I would posit then that you would find uh, oh, you would find room there for versions of AI, 
where AI would would obviously eradicate any form of slavery, and it would also eradicate any form, this is my utopia, so any form of human drudgery, any form of alienated labor, as Marx would call it. But then there would also be room for human work. In my understanding, a decentered idea of human work would be that it would be very modest in nature, not unimportant, but nonetheless modest. It would be through the work we did during parts of certain days, during certain parts of our lives, that we would learn certain virtues such as responsibility and care and commitment to the, the beauty or well-wrought nature of certain things and ideas. But I'm just suggesting that it's it's still in the realm of infrastructure largely. It's in the realm of what it makes what it does to make possible the continuation of human life. Right. And the continuation I should also keep adding of other life forms. But these are not the same thing as what I call following Aristotle the good life. And I would, in some respects, go back and suggest that the good life would be understood in two basic domains, in the domain of the active life and in the domain of the contemplative life. And the active life, or the vita activa, would involve bringing together a strong commitment to ecological restoration um, and a strong response to our climate emergency. Mm-hmm. While at the same time that it would be concerned with developing forms of politics that are actually concerned with the common good. Forms of interactive, deliberative, even direct democratic forms. Um, so in that respect, I'm very much you know, in, in the camp of certain forms of post-Marxians. But I would like to see that being very much a face-to-face relationship and not simply understood in terms of networks, even if those will be important. Right. And then the last bit takes me to the contemplative life. And um, here I more or less try to suggest that there are contemplative aspects of our nature that are realized through certain modes. And these modes, I should say, are not meant to be understood in the ways that we have in late modernity. So the first mode is that of art. I do think human beings are concerned with and care about what it is to create something. It's an assumption I'm making, but I I do think that that's right. We do care about the beautiful. So it's not that there would be a a particular group of people and we call them fine artists. They would still exist, but I I would be interested in how human beings themselves would cultivate the creative capacities in ways that would involve the apprehension and creation of artworks broadly understood. Right, and then too, I'd be concerned. Or I'm, I'm, I would want it to be the case. Human beings would be involved in philosophy, and philosophy is not narrowly understood as that which takes place in the universities that we're familiar with. No, philosophy is the loving pursuit of wisdom of what it is to lead a wise life, or you can say it's something that begins in wonderment. So, philosophy is that which really takes off in and through the apprehension of wonderment. And then I would say, thirdly, that, that there's another mode, which is the mode of science, very broadly understood as, as the attempt to empirically and theoretically understand the natural and social world. And finally, there would be time and place for people to be involved in, I'm using these words loosely, religion and spirituality. Right. I obviously have a mystical understanding. My mystical understanding is that it puts us in, these are the sorts of things that can put us in touch with a higher abiding reality 
which goes by different names. Since you mentioned Taoism, you might call it the Tao in this context. I should add that I'm not committed to that, to that vision. I'm putting it forward lightly without attachment. It's just a way of trying to provide as what Theodore Adorno once called axial turn, because I don't know how motivating it is for people individually or collectively not to have something that seems like uh, that in which they could reside, that in which they could belong, and that toward which they could move. Call that a vision of the good life. It's, it's interesting. What I, I, sh- I share your concern, and I'll try to kind of rearticulate this concern that what if we got everything that we wanted, right? So what if, for example, the democratic socialist movement was fully realized overnight? Or even you can go back to Bertrand Russell, uh, who wrote the, the book In Praise of Idleness, where he talks about 15-hour work weeks, or John Maynard Keynes, who did the same. Uh, Rucker Bregman is doing this nowadays really elegantly. These visions, you know, they're, I'm, I'm very drawn to them, and I get very kind of swept up in that story. But I also have this concern that I think is what you were just articulating where, and this actually comes up in, in conversations about universal basic income as well, is what if this all happened? Like, what then? Because as creatures, as, as human beings, um, there's a lot of people raise concerns of, of how we would exist in that space of not necessarily freedom, but in that space where there is a lack of coercion coming from the, the need to work and the need to secure our survival, our ongoing continued access to, to what we require to live and, and participate in society. Would we just binge Netflix every night? You know, and John Maynard Cades did it uh, really nicely. I, I pulled up a quote of his here because I think it it's kind of the heart of the matter. He says that thus we have been expressly evolved by nature with all our impulses and deepest instincts for the purpose of solving the economic problem. If the economic problem is solved, mankind will be deprived of its traditional purpose. And I think we might be able to take all kinds of issue here, but will this be a benefit? If one believes at all in the real virtues of life, the prospect at least opens up the possibility of benefit. Yet I think with dread of the readjustment of the habits and instincts of the ordinary man bred into him for countless generations which he may be asked to discard within a few decades. So this idea that if we get to this moment where what he's calling the economic problem is decentered from from our ways of being and, and how we live in the world, what are we going to do? Are we not bred for this? And um, it's an interesting question, and it speaks to me for the the need for education, for new forms of education that are not the kind of factories of mass production we have now that feed directly into the ideology of total work, but education that is much more kind of like tending a garden and, and equipping people to pursue their own growth and, and define what that means and so on. But um, there has to be an eye cast towards what lies beyond just that economic component. Right. It's one of the shortcomings of the Andrew Yang Freedom Dividend mm. or Partial, partial UBI for sure. Right. I've, I've been thinking about this question for some time as well. It more or less presents us with the question of nihilism. The easiest way to understand what this presents us with is to say we can consider two different um, questions. Ones I've taken up in one of my book called "The Good Life and Sustaining Life." If you have 
let's say, a perfect social democracy, then you've just finally solved, uh, ostensibly so, you've solved the economic problem. You've solved the problem of how human beings can sustain life. So far as that goes, it's obviously not a bad thing. Indeed, it is a good thing. But what you haven't realized is that human beings, literally, or as in the Buddhist, so to speak, have souls. And because we have, quote, souls, there are now all sorts of questions of the good life. And I'm using the good life here to mean what is life for? What is this all about? Mm -hmm. Why are we here? And so forth. So these are basic introspective questions that usually occur to someone in particular once that person has either A, become very successful and has therefore solved the economic problem and realizes that horrifyingly, now there is the void to stare into. Oh, great. <laughs> or, or, or it can occur whenever someone is really, as I put it, knocked off his horse or her horse and, and, and thrown out of the routines and regular habits of life. Right. So it's a wonderful question that Keynes has asked, and I'm also familiar with that essay. The question is not only how do we deal with that on an individual basis, for those of the cases I just described, is already being hard. How do we deal with it on a collective basis were this to come to pass? Yeah. And the answer is we're, you know, to put this in terms that people talk about when they speak about climate change or climate emergencies or when they speak about the possibility of AI superintelligence, the answer is we are woefully ill-prepared. We're <laughs> <laughs> completely ill-equipped. Yeah. We're completely ill-equipped to do, so to speak, philosophy on the fly. Right. Yeah. And I think... And I think what's especially scary about it is that we we know that there have been moments in history that have been really terrible. We know that early industrialization led to widespread suffering on behalf of working class people. But we don't have any we don't have any precedence when it comes to widespread uh, open eyed nihilism. Mm. We know that some people would probably devolve to pleasure. We know that a subset of these people would really take off, right? There would be a renaissance of some people who are already interested in what we've been calling consciousness. But there's a wide swath of people that can barely stand to be alone with themselves. And Joseph Pieper called that acedia, a kind of ambient restlessness of spirit, who would have to learn how to be alone with themselves. So you're right, usually people at this point turn to education in a broad sense. But this is a very strange question because we don't know what we're doing, I don't think. <laughs> and we don't really know how to, so to speak, scale it up. We know what a monastery looks like. We know what an ashram looks like. We know what a, a guru, let's say a good guru relationship looks like. We know how those carry one into different states, kinds, or levels of consciousness. But we don't know what it would mean to try to do this on a very, very wide, broad scale. Right. So not only are we ill-equipped because well, this is unprecedented, not only are we ill-equipped because we don't really have any educational models to easily pick from, but we're also ill-equipped because the sheer scale of this obviously imagined thought experiment, but one that, become one that could become very real, is itself uh, almost unfathomable. I mean, we would be seeing, in short, the, the very real possibility of nihilism not understood indirectly 
or in a roundabout way, but nihilism that just is shining forth right. in all its post-foundational <laughs> ugliness. Yeah, it seems to it seems to almost call uh, this this kind of dealing with that space for uh, what some folks are, are literally referring to as a new kind of human being, and this kind of this is to me is what Keynes was articulating too, is right. A total retraining of our most basic instincts and the optimist in me uh, can kind of take this and run with it because you have people increasingly, or maybe it's just that I'm just finding them right now, but I think we're in this moment. For example, the, the philosopher Zach Stein says that we are in a time between worlds and his focus is education. And he is, he wrote a really incredible book looking at and imagining the new forms of education that are being made possible by the advents of, of the internet and of networking and of new forms of social organization. And he has a quote that I use in almost every single essay I, I ever write, where he talks about how new forms of education give rise to new kinds of human beings. And Paul Mason is doing the same thing in his book when he's talking about the new kind of cultural possibilities being made possible through everything that is going on right now will lead to a new kind of human being. The kind of underlying idea that, and this is really an idea I want to chase and pursue in this podcast, is that certain organizations and inst cultural institutions, the way that culture is set up and its host of dynamics at any point in time, produces or affords or makes available certain organizations of conscious experience. And that if you tinker or change with those cultural dynamics and those institutions, you get new forms or new modes of consciousness that are made available or are incentivized or nudged a little bit. And if we take seriously, Zach Stein, that we're in this time between worlds where the logic that governed the 20th century and the institutions like, like the career that lasts for 40 years with benefits in a 401k, or even the, you know, the, the schools that to someone like me, and I think most of us who were born post-1950, the way schools are set up seem to just be a basic fact. But the fact is they, they really didn't come into being as they are until about 1950. That's when they really began taking their form. And so these things change and there's a flux that's underlying them. And if we're in a moment where this is beginning to happen, I, I can almost feel optimistic that, that human beings are being opened up to possibilities and potentialities that might really speak to this time. And I think that, I think your point is exactly what we need to take into this kind of moment of flux is to simultaneously be looking at, you know, how to prepare ourselves moving beyond the economic shifts and, and what it would mean to be a different kind of human being. What kind of human beings do we want to be? What is possible, you know, in this moment? What are the, what are the possibilities? And for that, we need utopian thinking. We need dreaming, we need fantasies, we need this kind of imagination um, that can reach beyond our current moment and, and kind of lay these blueprints to help us move forward. And so there, the optimist in, in me finds a lot of, of heart in kind of these folks who are really saying we're in a moment of cultural change. And I also wonder, you know, folks probably always think they're in a, in a really significant moment of cultural change all throughout history. I imagine you can make yourself feel that way. So I don't know how much of it is an illusion and how much is really a kind of unique moment of flux. But uh, uh, in addition to all that you said, this is a nice, a nice summation. I, I think I would also add that 
we need forms of psychotechnology or aesthetic exercises that help people to make that kind of transition. Right. My favorite philosophers, Pierre Ardo, passed away in 2010. There are a number of books arguing basically that ancient philosophy was a way of life that was centered on what he called ascesis or spiritual exercises. All these schools, therefore, I, I mean schools in the old-fashioned sense. School schools were Aristotelian, Epicurean, uh, Platonic, Stoical, so forth. Were actually concerned to cultivate the kinds of robust practices with a view, in their case, to to becoming wise. Mm-hmm. I'm taking that with me because he's clearly articulating a, a way of thinking about philosophy that's in certain broad strokes akin to to religion or what religion has been about. There are a number of contemplative traditions. Obviously, Buddhism is one of them, but Christian mysticism is another, in which they are really much grounded in the, the transformation of one's being in the world. And it's interesting because you begin to see all the different kinds of psychotechnologies beginning, kind of popping out of the woodworks here as people experiment what I might call a possibly second axial age. Hmm. Uh, you hear people talking about um, all sorts of facilitation techniques. I'm not sympathetic to all of them, but you hear a kind of a, 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 of a is there's an emergence of these various different things called life practices techniques. Yeah. I just call them psychotechnologies. I don't think they're all on par. It's probably not the place to to parse each and every one or to mm-hmm. talk about what I think is good about it or bad. The reason I bring them up here is that in addition to thinking about a vision, in addition to, to having to rethink education at this time when we're between worlds or as one person also puts it between stories, right. we also need to come up with thick forms of practices or exercises or contemplative approaches that help to actually at the corporeal and habitual level transform people's ways of being in the world. Yeah. And, and this is not just a Nassim Talibin remark about our becoming more anti-fragile, though it's a good thing unto itself. We will need to become more anti-fragile, not just resilient, but more anti-fragile. It's also because when you begin to cultivate yourself at that level, there is an actual a capacity, a capacity not just to see possibilities, but to embrace and pursue them. Mm. You have, you have, as it were, constitutionally what it takes, for example, to take a risk. We forget that risk-taking, just to use one simple example, is just extraordinarily hard. Taking a risk when, there is fa- when, when one is faced with uncertainty and fear, and one is going into a place where one knows not what's going to happen, requires what ancient Greeks called courage moral and intellectual courage but if it requires moral intellectual courage among other things then there must be a way of cultivating the capacities we need in order to be so to say at the ready to embark on a path again individually as well as collectively that's going to require more of us than it has hitherto required so that's the part I really want to add in here. There's a more of us, there's more constitutionally required of us than so far in recent history. Right, right. Bringing the, bringing the practices back to the forefront. 
Mm-hmm. Towards towards that end, then I'd like I think it's a good moment to make a little pivot to, more into the the world of contemplative practice and your experience. Uh, I know you have you have a lot of number of years of meditation under your belt, and you there was a a passage in a book that you wrote about sustaining life and the good life that I think can lead us into this into this arena. I thought it was a really great passage. Um, you wrote. This guide was written over the course of three weeks in August 2014, yet in some greater sense, its birth goes back to the years 2005-2009, a period I spent puzzling through Adorno's famous line, there is no right life in the wrong world or the wrong one. In my dissertation, whose point of inflection was the question of the good life in the modern world, I ultimately came to believe that Adorno's assumption that this was the wrong world and its being so his conclusion that the good life was unavailable to us were both incorrect. Since leaving the academy in 2009, I have sought to lead a philosophical life in order to prove that the good life is possible for us today. And that leaves me with a, a number of questions and a number of things I want to ask, but I'd like, I'd like to use it as an entry point into your experience meditating and maybe begin by asking when it was in your life when you first, maybe not decided, but you first began meditating, where you made the switch from being the human being who's referred to as Andrew Taggart, living living your life, and where then you looked out at things and your response to the universe, your response to the world was, I should really sit down and do as little as nothing for as long as possible. Um, so that mm-hmm. moment, that inflection point where, where meditation entered your life, I'd love to hear a little about that. So it might help if I tell my story and, and, and a certain philosophical key, and that might help us to situate the question you're asking. Yeah. It was in 2009 that I finished my PhD about the nature of the good life in the modern world, and I promptly and summarily realized, as I told you when we were speaking before, that I had no clue what I was doing with my life, why I was here, what it was all for. And those questions were precipitated by the fact that I wasn't really cut out to be an academic. But to loop back to what we said before about our institutions changing, I was only ever bred, so well, and I was complicit in that breeding, to be an academic or to be an institutional person. So I was in a state of what I call quiet despair. And, and, and therefore, I was as a blessing or gift, introduced to the art of introspection. I call that awakening to philosophy. That was one, not, writing about philosophy is, in my view, not awakening to it. Mm-hmm. Rather, being inhabited and, and implicated by certain fundamental questions is an awakening to philosophy. So that was in 2009. Uh, let's move ahead to 2012 where I meet a beautiful woman who is now my wife. And and then I was really introduced to another basic question, which is the question, what is love and how can I love someone? And how can I extend that love and care and compassion to other people? So now there are two questions that are really animating my life. The first is a philosophical one. How can I remain alive to basic questions of existence and how can I, lead a life that is wise. And the second one is how can I be loving? 
Then in 2014, I come to another fundamental concern. My eldest sister, uh, named Jen, uh, was diagnosed with late-stage cancer uh, in the end of 2013. Mm -hmm. And within 12 weeks, she was dead. Wow. And that's very, that's very fast, <clears throat> as I understand. Yeah. So I want to not get into the, and we could, but I, you know, there's obviously a number of personal questions there for, for, for me and for my, for my family, uh, many of them. But there was also what Zen called the great matter of life and death. I don't know how else to put that. Yeah. I was really, I was really shaken up by the fact that I had more or less been, even then, after all those years of inquiring, contemplating, reflecting, and philosophizing, had been uh, blind to the fact that I had taken the world on almost entirely secular terms. It's what Charles Taylor, whom I've already referred to, calls the imminent frame with a closed spin. <laughs> <laughs> that is, <laughs> it's a world that's closed off from metaphysical questions. Is there an afterlife? Was I born? Am I the same as this material being? Is, is reincarnation or rebirth possible? I, are there other levels of consciousness that are beyond the ordinary everyday forms of consciousness with which we're familiar? I think these are three important moments in my life story. The one about wisdom, the other about love, and the third about awakening. I mean, uh, awakening or enlightenment in, in the Buddhist sense. That really, in the relative but not absolute sense, made me who I am. So, to get back to your question, I really became alive to meditation of, of, the, of the seated kind in a fairly incremental way. I became alive to it initially through philosophizing with people. Philosophizing is rather like a piece of performance art. I have my eyes closed, the other person has his or her eyes closed. I'm asking the person a basic question, that person is replying with a basic answer, and so forth. That is not, strictly speaking, a non-discursive seated meditation practice. But I began to notice you know, as early as 2011 that uh, there's phenomenal states. <laughs> it was, I, I couldn't, I couldn't realize it. I was, I was feeling, I was feeling all these ineffable feelings about of joy and uh, well-being, gladness. I was feeling that my, my body actually was, was responding to what was occurring. My lungs felt as if they were quote growing, mm. growing larger. My eyes were dilated. My senses were, were much more um, intensively engaged. And, and those are just some simple byproducts or epiphenomena. But there seemed to be more that was actually happening. And I was very puzzled by that, even though I had read Ado. So there was already a kind of a transformation occurring in the one who is asking the questions of the one who's providing the answers. A transformation that wasn't really reducible to ordinary denotative language of the kind we find, for example, in science or in schools that we're familiar with. Right. So that was already a curious, mysterious, uh, uh, is already a curious, mysterious event. Yeah. And then it was in 2012 when I meditated for the first time with my, the woman who's now my wife, Alexandra, and the story goes like this. We're sitting there and our eyes are closed. We're holding it. We're sitting on a, uh, on a, a yoga mat and I can barely cross my legs. And my hands are reached out toward hers. So it has that kind of kumbaya uh, <laughs> optic. 
we probably sit there for 15 minutes. I confess I have no idea what I'm doing. Afterward, I think nothing really happened. Uh, until we go downstairs, we're living in New York at that time, uh, not far from Central Park. We, we walk outside of the brownstone. We are about two blocks from Central Park. We find our way there. When we cross the threshold, a good anthropological term here, and enter the liminal space of the park, <laughs> it's, it, then I find myself having a completely heightened state of consciousness. Mm. I have no desire to speak. In fact, words seem almost too heavy. I, we're walking around and my eyes are mostly closed, which makes it difficult to walk, frankly. And I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't feel such a strong sense of self as I would describe it now. It's not fully dissolved. This is, this is not an enlightenment, this is not an enlightenment experience, but I feel this great sense of awe and wonderment, joy, and un unspeakably other things about the nature of reality. I look at a pigeon as we walk to the Upper West Side, and I am enraptured by the pigeon and by the other pigeon. <laughs> I look at plastic bags, not from the point of view of someone who cares about um, ecocide or some such, but I look at it just moving in the wind in a glorious way. Everything just seems too much. Everything seemed as it should be. Nothing seemed out of place. And it wasn't as though the next day I thought, oh, I'm going to start meditating daily. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. it was more after, after the fact. It was about two or three, at least two hours, if not three hours in clock time. So time drops off, but post facto, you can say, oh, it was about two hours or so. Afterward, I thought, wow, that was really something. And that more or less was the, the seedling planted for beginning a meditation practice. That was one of them. I've already mentioned others, such as the great matter of life and death. I really picked up the practice later on. I guess if I could sum all this up, I'd say I was severed from my ordinary understanding of myself and reality in such a fundamental way in these different experiences that I intuitively got that there must be something more to all of this than what I had initially been led to believe. And I wanted, therefore, the philosopher in me wanted to know whatever it is that there is more than this ordinary limited perspective on who it is that I am and what this is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's a heck of a story. It's, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. We, your story is in one, in many senses unique. And in another sense, uh, a, many people that come to meditation, or are, are, as you said, come to be inhabited by these kinds of curiosities and questions about consciousness, do so through some kind of shock and, and often some kind of negatively tainted or some kind of intense mode of suffering that, as you said, wakes them up to the you know Zen's great matters of life and death. And this is, I, every time I think about that, I think about Denise Levertov's line in her poem where, you know, where she says that the social function of poetry is to awaken sleepers by means other than shock. And that's how I think of, of the education that we were speaking about is how to, how to make it possible for us to begin inhabiting these questions without us having to deal with these traumas and, or, or to come so through a an intensely, you know, suffering laden route, 
but you know, however that may, may be the case, it's also like, especially in my own experience, however you come to it, it's always this really fascinating inflection point in your life where, where you, you feel as if you've been opened up to these questions that seem so fundamental. In, in service of that, this is a question I've been, I've been asking a number of practitioners and people with some meditative experience under their belt, because I think it's a really interesting way of tying together the contemplative practice with these kind of socioeconomic questions or questions of work or capitalism. I wanted to ask if in your experience, uh, there is a question about what Jack Cornfield calls pure consciousness or a, a consciousness or an interior domain that is independent of conditions, independent of sociocultural conditions, independent of history that comes first, right? That is, that is kind of totally suspended. I guess I'd like to start by just asking in your experience if, if this is the case, if there is this kind of interiority that is prior to external conditions. Yeah, that's the, I would agree with that. That's where the deconstructionists, I think, were meditators. <laughs> that's the quickest way of putting it, right? They assume that language goes all the way down or language and culture go all the way down and go all the way up. So I'm not a diehard, uh, completely diehard social constructionist. In my own experience, it is the case that as the contemplations or meditations almost of their own accord, you might say, go deeper, there is the, the dissolution or the dissolving of um, ordinary things. So one I'd bought the teacher suggests that we can think of ordinary consciousness in the following manner. We can think about it in terms of the thoughts that arise, in terms, in terms of the images and feelings that arise. So these are ways of thinking about mind, the ordinary mind. You can think about it in terms of sensations. That gives us a, an experiential sense of the body. Since we only know our body, you would argue, through sense impressions or through sensations. And the last part, you would say, would be uh, perceptions. That is, hearing, seeing, and so on. We can then ask ourselves, is it possible to withdraw, to go inward, as Jack Cornfield was implying, to such an extent that all of these may still arise, if they do, they may not arise, frankly, and they don't always arise, but they become so quiet and so distant that it becomes clear that there is, I like the way the Bible puts it, there is a lived sense, a, a, a non-egoic uh, non lived sense of a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's the best way I've described my own experience, mm. a peace that surpasses all understanding. And I'm using the all understanding part to, to capture the cognitive, the ordinary cognitive, the ordinary emotional, the ordinary uh, sensorium, the ordinary perceptual, and so forth. Phenomenologists were speaking about how you bracket certain things when we try to go through certain inquiries. But this is the, <laughs> this is the ultimate bracketing. This is actually an experiential this is, this is the experience of silence or stillness. And, you know, sometimes it feels like complete abiding stillness or silence without even a whisper of movement. And this is where we're coming into, the, obviously, the, the, the practice or meditational part of, of the podcast. So that's why I keep saying, in my experience, this is right. so. Usually really good teachers will say, don't take my word for it. Go find out for yourself. Right. 
So, or, you know, my Rinzai teacher will say, confirm this in your own experience. He really means that. Yeah. He means confirm yeah. this in your own experience. I wonder, there's also this, this trope that kind of goes around about meditation where it is a, a breeding of, of apathy or of detachment, you know, and, and kind of especially in the mm. face of social activism and, and social justice, it can be seen as, you know, well, why would you want to detach from these things? And there's, there's a rich dialogue that goes on there and there's all kinds of responses. But I wanted to ask you because you inhabit this, this really interesting, interesting space where you're at least from where I'm sitting, you know, behind my computer thousands of miles away, it seems that the, the contemplative aspect is, is very intimate and important to your life. Where at the same time, what you're essentially engaging in is a kind of cultural critique. Um, and so I wanted to ask how those two spheres come together for you. If, if you found that your meditation practice feeds into your engagement with that kind of cultural critique and the, the writing and the work you're doing, because I think it speaks to kind of not, maybe not resolving, but it, it speaks to a way through that, that trope that really, I think gets a little infectious, this idea that meditation is narcissistic and self-indulgent. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting to look at those places where it actually comes together with an engagement in the world that is richer and more wholesome than otherwise. Right. This brings us back to the, I think a great cleft or divide between the modern understanding of the Vita Activa, the active life, which is instantiated either through political activism or through economics as usual. Right. right? The world of total work, for example. And the other side, which is the contemplative, and it's seen as being shorn off from the workaday world and the politically active world. To such an extent that we now have all these concepts such as retreats and getaways and the like. This is unfortunate because these need to be brought back together. And I think one way in which I've done so in my own life has been really quite tangible, uh, visceral, and poignant. The reason. I got so interested in total work. Interest is too, uh, too weak of a term. The reason I got so um, thrown into thinking about and trying to understand total work is that I was having conversations, philosophical conversations, with all these people in my philosophy practice who were suffering at the hands of total work. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, a, that, that's an important way of talking about the experience. It's a very much an I-thou uh, experience an experience of being with another person in a very intimate context and i'm learning that this person is unduly suffering as a consequence of a particular dispensation called total work i didn't know it at the time i just began to have clues or hints that different people living in different parts of the world were suffering and wanted to talk to me about the nature of work today if we start there if we, if we say that philosophy, for example, begins a lived experience and it kind of takes you up into basic questions, into wonderment, into wondering what this is all about. If we start with how a contemplation or a contemplative science or a meditation usually begins with something that rattles a cage. I don't think it has to be traumatic per se. It just has to be sufficient. So people will take psychedelics and they'll be opened up in some way. Right. There's some way in which you opened up through through lived experience there. In both cases, through philosophy and meditation, you're being opened up through lived experience. It doesn't follow that you thereby dwell 
in the, in the silence or the stillness. Because you remember, you remember what it was that called you there in the first place. And what it was that called you there in the first place was indeed the, the sets of experiences that may have befallen you, but may also befall others. You, you know, this is the bodhisattva or ecosattva ideal in part. That is that you don't just want to save yourself. And I'm referring there to save uh, salvation in the sense of becoming enlightened. You also, at the same time, and more importantly still, want to save others. And save here might be the wrong word to use here. You, you want to engage in the lives of other people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. And let me say something about suffering, though. Because suffering isn't just those who are starving. And I think that's the, the, the mistaken picture we have. It's not just those that are so recognizably as being the victims of various forms of capitalism, for example. Those people are are, are suffering in a, in a gross sense, as the Buddha would say. But what we forget or neglect is the fact, as the Buddha would point out over and over again, that each of us, insofar as we are not enlightened, insofar as we are selvingly experiencing the world, are suffering. And that's very poignant. So there's a, there's a poignancy and a relevance and an immediacy and a, and a, and a visceral, tactile uh, responsiveness to, to, to being in the presence, whether it be literal or literally or figuratively understood, of other people for whom there is something that's the matter. Right. And, and I would add, maybe I can just complete this, this thought by saying that contemplation meditation, practice, or Christians will call prayer in the proper sense, all actually operate in such a way as to make one feel much more uh, sensitive to, I don't mean sensitive to, I mean (laughs) sensitive to the suffering of others. Life becomes so much more poignant. So the caricature of the person who is meditating a lot, and this can happen to people, but the caricature of the person who is meditating and thereby becoming detached and emotionally cut off is something that needs to be critiqued. If someone is really meditating, then life becomes amplified. Things become more, I won't say pressing, but... uh, there becomes more of 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 a, of a liveliness of a liveliness, almost like you felt in the park, right? That vividness. Yes, but 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 also with other people. So there, it's right. you know that, that's a, exactly it's a liveliness, but that's that's a liveliness there in concert with nature. But I also say it's a liveliness that is in concert with other people, right? So the opening oneself, hmm. opening oneself up to all sentient beings and to all sentience. And I'm not saying that I'm, so to speak, I've gotten there in all ways. I'm just providing, uh, I, I think, oh, a different way of illuminating the relationship between what it is to be in the world in an active sense and what it is to be contemplating. And the contemplations are A, unto themselves, but B, they have a way of saturating, permeating and, and uh, inhabiting and Ill- infiltrating the way in which one is in the world. And in fact, I think they would be insufficient if they weren't really about uh, saturating, permeating, and transforming how one is in the world with other people and with other sentient mm. beings. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because 
another one of the kind of discourses that are emerging now that I find really fascinating. These groups that are taking meditation as kind of one vector of development in in a larger kind of host of of practices. And one of the manifestations of that, uh, I've been talking with Daniel Thorson, who works at, at the Monastic Academy in Vermont, and something that they've been exploring a lot is the idea of social meditation, or uh, I think it's called circling, you know, this this practice of taking that same meditation practice, but doing it in the literal presence of others and seeing how that modifies or or what new kind of ranges of experience and and being in relation to other people that makes available. So I think it's really interesting to see how the the conversation of med- meditation practice and what it is um, is evolving to kind of almost like water, right? It's it's taking this this new shape and, and exploring this new kind of crevice of literally, because I, I, I'm totally on board with everything you have said, that even just the practice of sitting isolated is a way of coming into greater and closer and more intimate uh, relation with other people and with the whole of what is happening. But you can also physically translate that into, all right, let's sit in a circle, you know, let's sit with each other and enter this mm-hmm. same state of consciousness or enter this same kind of place of openness and explore it together. Um, and so that's, that's been one vector that I found really interesting. I'm completely with you. I, I, as I mentioned before, I was speaking with David Loy, who was, uh, who has written a book on eco-dharma and he and some other people started the Rocky Mountain eco-dharma center in, in Colorado. And they are still trying to explore and experiment with how one begins to, for example, meditate in nature or what are, what is the relationship between the Dharma or Buddhist teachings or Eastern teachings and uh, ecological engagement. So, and you just mentioned another example out of of circling. I think we might be, and I make this also as a speculative remark, entering into what I'm calling the second axial age. The axial age was a term coined by Carl Jaspers to try to understand what in the world was going on uh, around the time that Socrates... Gautama the Buddha, Confucius, Jesus, and others were living. Can we characterize this as being actually an extraordinarily spiritually innovative time? He thought we could. I think we might be entering a something like what I'm calling the second axial age. And, and if that's so, then you can begin to make sense of the ways in which people are developing different practices of the kinds that Daniel Thorson and David Loy were describing. I want to add something further, though, to this picture. And it's it's a picture of why we might need to develop more practices or contemplations, meditation. There's been uh, a great deal of ink spilled in the American Zen community on account of all the Zen scandals right. that have taken place since the since Zen came to the United States in the 1960s and following. There's a really there's a genuine question. So obviously there's an ethical question. There are also lots of ethical questions about abuse and authority and the like. But there's also a, 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 a metaphysical question. How is it possible that if someone is, is enlightened that he or she can act in such vicious ways? One argument that this person needs to be in my mind, and I think it's Daniel Wright or mm-hmm. Dave Wright, makes in his book, what is, what is Buddhist Enlightenment, is that it's just the case that by his lights, Zen, for example, has only cultivated practices that you might say are concerned with the relationship between mind and metaphysics or mind and world. He thinks that they just don't have 
the kinds of ethical practices or really thick ethical practices of the kind that Aristotle was concerned with in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics. For there, Aristotle says that, that we learn to be ethical, this is not going to really surprise you, A, through habit formation, by being brought up well, and then B, through forms of robust ethical reflection mm-hmm. upon what is the morally right thing to do, or, or was that a good thing to do, and the like. And so what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm beginning to suggest is that we actually do need an all-hands-on-deck approach. This brings us back in some ways to right. education, too. We need an all-hands-on-deck approach because we can't think that you know, the man, we, the person we're going to call Andrew, meditating, for example, on his own in a cave or whatever, is thereby going to cultivate all practices, or sorry, I should say all capacities that are necessary to be a thriving mm-hmm. human being. This is not going to teach me how to be a wise political leader. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it might teach me about the interconnectedness or interdependence of all things and beings. That's true. And to that extent, it may inform my being a, a, a political leader. But it is simply not going to cultivate the capacities for me to be able to know what is the right thing to do on behalf of the common good in and through A, experience, B, practice, and C, reflection. Another way of putting this is to say that Buddhism can no longer be right. the be-all and end-all. Or take whatever word you want to use there. Any practice you have can no longer be the be-all and end-all. It can be a very important part of it, but there's no way it's going to teach you, for example, how to be an eloquent human being. There's no way it's going to teach you how to write nice letters. Yeah. Those are trivial right. examples. But they, re- they reveal to you that the, the ideal of Buddhist enlightenment is very important, but it's in some respects been oversold. Yeah, it it brings me back, or maybe to kind of bring it together. There's a, a quote from Peter Sloterdijk that you you quoted in your in your book, and it's from his book "You Must Change Your Life," which might be a little misleadingly titled. Um, I've been reading that book on and off for a while now, and the quote is where he says it speaks to exactly this kind of pickle that I feel myself to be in, and I think that really describes a lot of our moments where he says modernity is the time in which those humans who hear the call to change no longer know where they should start with the world or with themselves or with both at once. And it's in his conclusion there in this kind of both at onceness that is really kind of coming forward. And I think we need to amplify our, are these not, not to use a, a baggage heavy word, but these more integral approaches to what we're doing and, and how to get to where we might want to go. I, I, I like that quite a bit because I, I actually did just read Ken Wilber's book, A Theory of Everything. So the word integral did just actually come to mind as yeah. you were speaking. And that is the that is one way of talking about an all-hands-on-deck right. approach. So there are those on the right, such as Jordan Peterson, the moderate right, who are arguing that we need to clean up our room right. first. So he's taking a very standard conservative view. Clean, clean your room. Get your own mm-hmm. house in order. That's important. And, and according to Ken Wilbur, it has been neglected by the right. left. But then there are those who say that getting your, 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 your own house in order may become, for example, a, a merely self, solipsistic act if it has nothing to do with the, the larger world around you. And, and so you have leftists who will you know, turn, turn the corner and say, well, what about social and ecological justice, among other things? Rightly so, but I, I, I like I liked Ken Wilber's book because it was actually all yeah. hands on deck. It suggests that we actually need to do both without sacrificing one to the other, with, without playing one against the other, 
or without coming into different political camps or factions where one is emphasized at the expense right. of the other. I like right. they pointed out that the left itself is an un, unconcerned or uninterested in the interior lives of people. I mean, it's not for nothing that the people I tend, I mean, this is an interesting point, the people I've tended to have more philosophical conversations with over the years have indeed been business persons. Hmm. Yeah. They have indeed been people who have come to it by means of, let's call it self-help. We can denigrate self-help if, if we're being snobby, or we can say, hang on, that's an entry point into some broader questions about the interior life and about the kind of person I am. Yeah. Once again, though, that's necessary but insufficient. One way of trying to describe how they come together was through that example I gave. That's a pretty, it's a pretty tactile one. It just suggests that someone who's contemplating actually is becoming much more aware of, of, uh, of, of the unsatisfactory nature of the lives of people around that person. And it becomes so much harder to turn away. I call that betrayal. It becomes so much more difficult to turn away from other people in a way that you once had because it can be no longer neglected in the same way. Right. That's just one way of thinking about how we need both at once because it's because both at once are staring you in the face. Once you start to see that it's staring you in the face. I think Slaughter Dyke talks there about um, home at Rilke. And there's a, there's a, there's a way in which I think there's a statue or a bust a torso that's uh, staring back at us, or I should say it is the one that's staring at us or its gaze is upon us. When you contemplate more, you realize that more of life is staring at you, gazing <laughs> at you. Right. As we move towards uh, a closing point, one last question I wanted to squeeze in. Uh, a lot of our, our, our conversation has, I think, tended towards the direction of participating in the cultures that we want to see emerging in the world or, or taking, you know, taking part in these, right. in these groups. And I think that I've, from what I've gathered, um, especially in, in the quote from your, your book I left where you said you left academia in order to prove that the good life is possible, to try to live it yourself and inhabit that in your own life. Um, I also know that you've spoken a little bit about participating in a gift economy and a little bit of an alternative economic model or structure. So I wondered if you, if you wanted to share anything about how you've participated in these, what would be considered alternative arrangements and if they have enriched or opened any, like have, have they benefited your contemplative life? Have they benefited um, you on a whole in being able to participate in these different structures or have they, have they fallen a little flat in some areas and you're looking elsewhere or have you, have you really kind of settled into, to a more intentional way of being? And if you have, what are those kind of guiding ethics or principles or structures that you use? I know that you've mentioned you have, I think, uh, two philosophical conversations a day, these kinds of very explicit, you know, ways of, of trying to create this framework for, for your, your days and, and your being that, that might offer these different uh, modes of consciousness that are made available inside of different institutional frameworks. Wow. That's a, there's a lot there. <laughs> There's a lot packed in. Okay, let me begin generally. There have been people such as Buckmaster Fuller and maybe most especially Ivan Illich who have strongly urged us to see that whatever system, you're calling it capitalism, that we're a part of is not as monolithic as we've made it out to seem. And therefore, 
there may be, as Illich likes to put it, pockets of otherwise, pockets where there can be experiments and living. I've taken that to heart. The, the downside of taking that to heart would be that you do fall afoul of the critique that you're not engaging fully in the system which you've been departing from, and I think that's a reasonable, uh, it's a reasonable critique or objection. The upside, however, of doing so is that you're actually able to try out a model for how to live, one that is diagonal from our common sense understanding of, say, that system. So that is what I've done, and that's to some degree, I think, what other people are trying to do. Uh, I think we might actually see another, as I said, another counterculture in which people in small groups or on their own continue to try out different models for how to live. That's becoming more possible today. So I can just say a little bit more about how mine yeah. is. This is a fairly granular, but if we're, if we're thinking as about what it's like to not lead the life of a total worker, it follows that that life is going to look and feel, it's going to look and feel very different from the life and feel of a total worker. So uh, I would say that most succinctly put, my, my wife and I live a, a lay monastic life. That's, that is to say, we, we wake up early, we meditate. Um, it depends, but we can meditate for anywhere between an hour, hour and a half on most mornings. Then I'll have a first philosophical conversation, which, like this podcast, is untimed. So we don't know how long it will last or when it will end. We just know that we're going to wholeheartedly engage in matters of ultimate concern. So that, to me, is actually an act of contemplation. How that the relationship between the act of contemplation work, I think, is a fuzzy one in that case. So I call it a gray zone. Then we have physical practices. My wife and I do. We, we are rock climbers, so we're very concerned with uh, or involved in nice. climbing. Um, we have eating, you know, <laughs> sounds like life hacking <laughs> all of a sudden, but we also intermittently fast. So I think that's, I do think that fasting can be an important part of uh, withdrawing oneself from greed, withdrawing oneself to from mm-hmm. the mindful eating. So then I usually have some writing I do of various forms, uh, not because I would call myself a writer, but because I think that writing is a very beautiful way. Uh, of trying both to understand and express something, at least that is for me. And then I'll usually have a second philosophical conversation, also with time, also concerned with matters of basic, uh, basic importance. And then there may be some reading and the like. And usually by the end of the day, there is uh, another meditation period. I may find time for a third meditation period in the middle of the day. That's more or less, if you look at a monastic schedule, you would find that this has bears a striking resemblance mm-hmm. to it. And you'd also find that that bears virtually no resemblance to what these basic activities look like in the, in the life of someone who uh, unfortunately, well, unfortunately needs to be gainfully employed. That is someone who has a job and is on a career path. But the, the idea is that it's meant to be a living example of how to lead a good life, which is concerned with pursuing wisdom, enlightenment, love, and maybe something else in the future. It's meant to be the enfleshment of those teloi, of those final aims. So that also means, and I won't go through this in in great detail, that I wanted to understand what my relationships 
with the people with whom I speak are based on. Uh, I developed an alternative economic model, which anthropologists call a gift economy, one that I really thought hard about for quite some time in order to make possible the kind of relationship I wanted to have with people. I could go into that in detail, but it's, I think it's enough to say here that it's based on the, on the concept of the gift rather than on that of mm-hmm. exchange. And then parsing those two takes, it quite, it takes, <laughs> takes quite a little right. of, of thought. I would like to say lastly, though, that, that I don't think that what I've described so far is sufficient. It's, I would call it a bridge. It's not sufficient in the sense that it's, I think it's still based on individual assumptions on myself as being an individual, on an idea of individual enlightenment, on living in a, in a private setting with, with another, with my wife. It still hasn't gone far enough. The, a gift economy between me and so many other people in the world hasn't gone far enough. They're training. T.W. Winnicott would call it a transition object. It's a transition object to a point at which one begins to figure out a way to more collectively live a model of life that is an example of the good life. Therefore, it should be said that it's important, but it's certainly not the end of the road. And, 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 and therefore, it is, it is by no means perfect or ideal. It's more like a way uh, out beyond the, the, the way of life that we're collectively used to into a meadow where you find some important and beautiful things, but it is not, you know, it is not the top of the mountain. Right. I may use a cliche. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's it, it. I really appreciate that as kind of a culmination to, to the arc of the conversation of just how you are embodying. And, and as you said, in fleshing at least these alternatives and, and bringing them into being. And uh, I'm really appreciative and thankful you took the time. This was an absolute blast. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation too, and I found it really quite edifying. All right, that was Andrew Taggart. If you enjoyed the conversation and would like to get more familiar with his work, his website is andrewjtaggart.com, which I'll link to in the show notes. And if you enjoy the podcast and you want to help it exist or even thrive and are so moved to help support it, you can head over to patreon.com slash or the podcast website musingmind.org slash podcast, where even a donation of $1 a month will really help me get this project off the ground, improve production quality, and just give more time into developing and researching and making it interesting and valuable and fun. Alternatively, there are free methods of support, like rating the podcast on iTunes or just sharing it with a friend. I thank you all for being here, and I'll talk to you next time.